bone and sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. Hello, and welcome to my study. Please come in and have a seat. All the books surrounding you are those used as sources for our show. We will be sharing with you tonight some interesting selections from one of these volumes, Assisted. I guess you could call it that, Assisted. Should I just sit this one out? No. You don't want me in it. I can see you're still fuming. I'm not. Then can we get through this without you snipping at me? I wouldn't call it that. It's, it's just been a terrible week. You know it has. I know. Terrible. Yes. The, the thing is, um, well, uh, to back up, assisted as always by the housekeeper of this estate and co-host of this show, Mrs. Carswell. You say hello. Hello. You should just... Talk about it. So the reason we're a bit late getting this show out, um, we had an incident, and I'm just trying to make sense of it. With Strix, the owl Mr. Ridenauer adopted several months ago. She, well, you can explain. I can't explain. That's the thing. I, well, it's... Strix is gone. She just disappeared. Last Saturday. Saturday night, or maybe Sunday morning. We just can't be sure, and I I don't know how, or I don't want to know. You found that loose mesh. So Strix had been staying in the old solarium attached to the house. It hasn't been used for decades, and so most of the glass panels are gone. But the whole thing was covered over with mesh, and not the... Not flimsy chicken wire. It's industrial strength stuff, welded and galvanized fencing mesh. It's and when we realized Strix was gone, Mr. Ridenauer searched all over the solarium and found this one part that was loose from the frame. Oh, it was loose, but that opening was really small, too small. And it was laying pressed flat against the frame. If Strix had torn it... Open. I know, I know. If Strix had torn it open, she wouldn't She wouldn't have... have pulled it flat behind her once she was out. It would have been left standing open. It would have been bent open and hanging. We would have seen it right away. So we're thinking maybe somebody stole her. No, we're not. You said it was possible. I... No, she wasn't stolen. No one would steal her. Or likely... The door was left open. Uh, here we go. I'm not accusing anybody. No, not you. I'm not naming names. I just know that someone who was very, very scared of Strix and had sworn to confront those fears, sworn in front of all of our listeners to confront them on a certain day. Oh, when was it? Oh, oh, the second Sunday in August, I think. And and uh, let's see, when did this happen? It doesn't again? even make when sense. 
The last time I went in there, she tried to kill me, so why would I open a door and leave it standing open so she could follow me out and attack me? I never said that. I told you not to wear the owl makeup. It's a tribute. If you lose something important to you, you should acknowledge it. It's a memorial. She's not dead. Anyway, I don't think she'd like it. I do. I think she'd like it very much. Oh, I have a headache. Why don't we just start the show? Why? Here, give me that. This is episode 116, The House Struck by Lightning and Other Curiosities. So, I am your host, Al Ridenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, examines the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started the show as a way to further explore this area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas, and am currently working on a related volume. Um, once that work is complete, at some point in the fall, probably, we will be back to our old format, by the way. Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors who receive monthly rewards, including not one, but two bonus episodes. And I'll have more on all that at the end of our show. In this episode, we'll be returning to the 1825 volume compiled by Sherwood Jones and Company, entitled The Terrific Register, or Record of Crimes, Judgments, Providences, and Calamities. I hope you find it entertaining. Though I would discourage listeners from uh, eating while they enjoy this particular episode. A house struck by lightning. The following account of a house struck by lightning at Russing End near Hitchin in Hertfordshire is related by an eyewitness. About one o'clock on Wednesday, June 26, 1771, I was going into my hayfield and perceived a black storm rising in the south in direct opposition to the wind, which was then full north. It continued hanging there for a full hour, and not seeming to come on, I walked into my field, which was about a half mile off. On my arriving there, a violent clap of thunder came, though the sun at that time shone very clear. I turned about to go home, and thinking it would rain hard, proceeded to go through a wood but on getting into the middle of it, as I heard no continuance of the thunder, I imagined the storm is over. But as I was returning, I heard a second clap, which was accompanied by a slight sprinkling of rain. I then continued my walk through the wood into a field, and, looking towards the black cloud, saw a small flash of lightning succeeded by a pale spiral pillar of fire, which shot up into the clear air of vast height, then followed a loud clap of thunder. From these circumstances, I imagined some mischief had happened in the neighborhood. On my coming into the house, I looked at the clock and found it wanted five minutes of three. It then rained very fast. The next day, I was told that much damage was done at a farmhouse at Russing End. 
I went there and found the accident had happened just after their clock had struck three. I was shown the back part of it and a large chimney to which a small bedchamber chimney was fastened by an iron square clamp and iron hook, which I imagined attracted the lightning. It entirely took down the chimney as if done by a workman. At the back was a leaden gutter and an oak board to support it, neither of which were moved or discolored. From thence it broke a hole in the left-hand side of the chimney, and the chimney, being stopped up where it was usual to have chimney boards, it diverted its course to the right of a closet containing several bottles of liquor. All the full bottles were broken, the empty ones saved. It forced open the closet door, though locked, and covered it all over with a brimstone. It forced off the two middle ledges, the upper and lower ones, remaining firm. From thence it descended into the kitchen and ran over two spits on the rack covering them with a yellowish slime and of a clammy feel. It then broke to pieces a cupboard under them, in which was a brass tobacco box full of gunpowder, the lid of which it blew open without firing the gunpowder, but only mixing it with a yellowish color. A bird which hung on the bacon rack six feet off the chimney was not hurt, only a splinter two feet long forced into his cage. The panels of the cupboard were flung to the farthest end of the kitchen, a woman and a child who sat near the window were flung out of their chairs unhurt. But the maid, who was sweeping the house near the door, which is open, was beaten down senseless and laid so till ten o'clock that night. Her face and all her right side were scorched, but her clothes were not singed at all. It discolored a tin candle box without firing either the candles or matches. It ran over a chopping knife which hung in the chimney, and from thence made a black streak into the fireplace across the hearth. It made a small hole into the yard through the wall of the house, under the window shutter, and broke a hole in the shutter a foot above it. Wherever there were nails in the window, it melted the lead all about it. Some brass candlesticks were spotted in many places with blue spots burnt in. They were underneath the shelf of teacups, which were untouched. It went out the door obliquely into the stable, and passed under the horses' bellies without harm, but so terrified them they would not feed for the remainder of the day. It struck a colt blind, which was in an adjoining field, set fire to a hayrick, killed three pigs, and otherwise did some fair damage. Now, uh, I apologize to our Catholic listeners for this one. It's obviously a Protestant author. Uh, horrible Crimes of the Romish Pontiffs. Of Pope Formosus, it is said that his successor, Stephen VII, considered him so horrid a criminal that he caused his body to be dug out of the grave and thrown into the Tiber. Stephen himself was regarded as equally infamous and strangled on account of his crimes. Pope Sergius was so far lost to all sense of shame that he openly kept both a mother and daughter as mistresses. Like many other modern concubines, these holy females, for everything is esteemed holy that belongs to the Pope, regulated all matters of state and governed the church as best suited their interests. John VII is accused of practicing magic, of paying divine honors to Venus and Jupiter, and of having debauched females on the steps of the altar. He was afterwards deposed by a council supported by an emperor, 
But this act has been censured by some popish writers on the ground that no man on earth has right to judge as to the conduct of a pope. Boniface VII is accused of murdering Benedict VI in order to make way for his elevation to the papal see. It is, indeed, admitted by Cardinal Benno that a poisoner of the name of Brazet was kept in pay at Rome by his aspiring brethren, and that this holy assassin actually carried off seven or eight popes by poison at the instigation of these cardinals who became impatient to fill the chair of St. Peter. It is charged against Alexander VI that, after debauching his own daughter, he gave her to one of his sons as mistress, who transferred her to another son, with whom she afterwards lived as a wife. This monster was chiefly distinguished for his cruelty and an immoderate desire of promoting his natural children to dignities and honors. One of his sons, in concert with Alexander, had prepared poison for two cardinals whose property he wished to inherit. But by mistake of the cupbearers, they drank the poison themselves. Alexander expired in horrible torture, and his death was worthy of his life, and gave great joy to the Romans and to all of Italy. Okay, these are longer, so only a few of them. Uh, let's see. Uh, this is the one you might put aside anything you might be eating. The dead devoured by the living. Instances of extraordinary and depraved appetites may be found in the writings both of ancient and modern authors. And there are also many cases on record in which it will be seen that this horrible disease has reached to a most astonishing height. But not one of them can parallel the following disgusting narrative. We have some recollections of reading an account of a brutal Englishman whose depraved and unnatural appetite could only be appeased by human flesh. But even this case was not attended with such diabolical circumstances of depravity and horror as will be found in the perusal of the following. The police of Paris, a short time since, apprehended and lodged in the Bicetre Asylum a man named Antoine Langoulet who, they were given to understand, had been for a long time past in the habit of satisfying an unnatural appetite with food of the most repulsive and disgusting description. It appeared that animal substances in the highest state of putrefaction, and even the human body itself, were regarded by this miserable wretch as very delicate morsels indeed. He usually stayed within doors the whole of the day till sunset, when he would walk forth and parade up and down the dirtiest lanes and alleys of Paris, and, noting where a piece of stinking carrion lay floating in the kennel, he would return at midnight and, seizing it, convey it to his lodgings and feast on it for the next day's meal. In this manner he kept up his wretched existence for years, until, by a refinement in his appetite, he at length found his way to the burial grounds, and, after many attempts, with some rude instruments his ingenuity had formed for that purpose, he at length succeeded in pulling out of the grave several of the bodies recently interred. His appetite was so ravenous that he would feast upon them on the spot, and covering the remains with soil would return for several successive evenings to finish the repast. As he states, he was at first fearful of being seen carrying anything from such a place as a cemetery. 
What is still more extraordinary, he would feast himself upon the intestines in preference to any other part of the body. And when he had thus regaled himself, he would fill his pockets with as much as they would conveniently hold this horrible material for a future meal. At length, he found this plan inconvenient, as it took up too much time. He therefore determined on running the risk of discovery and conveyed his darling article of food to his lodging, which was in a miserable hayloft. Thus, he attempted, and actually conveyed several times, the whole of the body of a young female which had been entombed a week before. Here he was discovered regaling on his truly horrible repast, and the terrific appearance which the whole scene presented struck the beholders with unspeakable horror. When interrogated on the subject of his dreadful depravity, he said that from a child he had always been fond of what other people denominated loathsome, and then expressed his surprise and wonder that anyone could attach the least blame to him for a taste to him so natural. Nor did he appear to consider that he had committed any crime in endeavoring to satisfy that appetite in the way he had done. His answers to whatever questions were put to him were precise and rational, although there appeared at times a little incoherence in his manner. He acknowledged that he sometimes felt the greatest inclination to devour children of a tender age, and that he never could summon sufficient courage to kill them. He has ever since been incarcerated in the prison of Bicetra for fear of the consequences which might result from his horrible propensities. The above report was communicated to the conductors of the archives by Dr. Bertollet, and every reliance may be placed on its authenticity. This horrible account cannot possibly be equaled. We, however, present our readers with the following specimen of an unnatural appetite, which has not been unaptly termed by medical practitioners the bulimia or canine ravenous fever, and the disease is always beyond the power of medicine to relieve in any way. There was a Polish soldier named Charles Domry in the service of the French on board a frigate which was captured by the squadron under the command of Sir J. Borlas Warren off Ireland in 1799. He was 21 years of age and stated that his father and brothers had been remarkable for their voracious appetites. He began when he was 13 years of age. He would devour raw and even live cats and dogs besides Bullock's liver tallow candles, and the entrails of animals. One day, September 17, 1799, an experiment was made of how much this man could eat in one day. This experiment was made in the presence of Dr. Johnson, a commissioner of sick and wounded seamen, Admiral Child, and Mr. Forster, agents for prisoners at Liverpool, and several other gentlemen. He had breakfasted at four o'clock in the morning on four pounds of raw cow's udder. At half past nine o'clock, there was set before him five pounds of raw beef and two tallow candles of one pound weight, together with one bottle of porter. At one o'clock, there was put before him five pounds more of beef, one pound of candles, and three bottles of porter. He was then locked up in the room, and sentries were placed at the windows to prevent his throwing away any of his provisions. At two o'clock, he had nearly finished the whole of his candles and the greater part of the beef. At quarter past six, he had devoured the whole and declared that he could have eaten more. 
the whole of what he consumed in the course of that one day amounted to four pounds raw cow's udder, ten pounds raw beef, two pounds candle, total sixteen pounds, besides five bottles of porter. The eagerness with which this man attacked his beef when his stomach was not gorged resembled the voracity of a hungry wolf. He would tear off large pieces with his teeth, roll them about his mouth, and then gulp them down. When his throat became dry from continued exercise, he would lubricate it by stripping the grease off a candle between his teeth and then wrapping up the wick like a ball would send it after the other part in a single swallow. He could make shift to dine on immense quantities of raw potatoes or turnips, but by choice he would never taste bread or vegetables. He was, in every respect, healthy, six feet three inches high, of a pale complexion, gray eyes, long brown hair, well-made but thin, his countenance rather pleasant, and he was good-tempered. His perspiration was profuse, to which Dr. Johnson and other medical men have ascribed the rapid dissipation of the ingested matter and his incessant craving for fresh supplies of food. And now, a bit of poetry as we close our show with Carswell's Corner. For this episode, we'll be hearing from a poet who needs no introduction. At least, I think that's who we're hearing from. The poet here being Edward Gorey. In 1973, he published one of his hard-to-find books called Limericks. In the various versions that came out, he's always credited as the illustrator. But there's another name, Betty Jane Wagner, who seems to be the author in one version. In another, she's called the editor. And another suggests that there are contributions to the text by Edward Gorey. In any case, it seems the poems very much were channeling Gorey's spirit. They weren't given titles, so we'll just call this one Father. Each night, Father fills me with dread when he sits on the foot of my bed. I don't mind that he speaks in gibbers and squeaks, but for 17 years, he's been dead. I hope everyone's been enjoying our show and that you might take the opportunity to leave a review if you do. It uh, very much helps us with the visibility of the show on the streaming services. Um, As promised at the top of the show, I'd like to provide a bit more on the rewards of joining Bone and Sickle via Patreon. A monthly pledge of $2 provides you immediate access to hundreds of show blog posts in which I share curious tidbits from history, folklore, and horror films sometimes. It's all related to the general subject matter of the show. Donating a mere $4 or more monthly brings you not one, but two short extra episodes. Other rewards include downloads of the show soundscapes heard under the narration, the show scripts, my Krampus book, various t-shirt and mug options, the bone and sickle candle, and unique and hand-packed mystery kits. Pledges start at $1 a month and can be canceled at any time. And we do have some new subscribers we want to acknowledge this time around. Uh, thank you to James Swartout, Raphael Raphael, and uh, Grubnash for a very generous annual pledge. 
Bone and Sickle is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer. Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening.